This podcast is sponsored by Genesis Aerosystems, a Moog company and leading provider of autopilots for rotor and fixed-wing aircraft. The Genesis STEC 5000 is the latest digital autopilot providing increased safety plus decreased pilot workload. It's being certified for Part 23 and Part 25 retrofit aircraft such as high-performance turboprop and turbine jet aircraft. To learn more about the STEC 5000, visit genesis-aerosystems.com. This week on Hangar Talk, an electric aircraft climbs to new heights. And a very light jet, eight years in the making, finally makes its first flight. Be ready for that ICAO flight plan. And once you file that ICAO flight plan, Ian, be ready for the 2017 AOPA regional fly-ins. All right, David, that sounds great. You ready to do Hangar Talk? Let's do it, Ian. Okay, David, first story, um, extra aircraft, you know, the super high performance. Aerobatic plane. Yeah, you got it. Um, in this case, the extra 330LE, which nice. is yeah, one of their top of the lines. Um, actually, Walter Extra, the namesake, um, put a Siemens, Siemens, they would call it. Siemens engine, electric. Yep, yep electric motor into uh-huh. that guy and took off like a rocket. He did, 2,200 feet per minute. That's what it climbed at. That's a little bit better than the Cessnas we fly around here. Yeah, yeah, it really <laughs> is. Um, so the whole point was a time to climb record. Uh, he went to what? About 10,000 feet in four minutes, 22 seconds. Wow, that's awesome. Which is really impressive. That plane is impressive it in is. any form. Yeah, yeah, it really is. It's super cool. Um, one thing that's interesting is, you know, people, I think, who who aren't following electric closely, they might not have a sense of how powerful these motors have become. Yeah. Let, can you uh, describe it to us in, in terms that would, like, equate to horsepower? Yeah. And so this is where it gets a little bit tricky. I mean, uh-huh. you'll, you'll hear people say the electric motor has so many horsepower, but, of course, it doesn't doesn't have horsepower kilowatts yeah it's yeah and but they do make horsepower equivalents Uh and in this case i think um 260 kilowatt motor uh uh with a 348 equivalent horsepower that is huge ponies yeah that's a monster that is yeah so uh this i you know it'll get up and go yeah (laughs) um i'm so excited about this stuff i you know i'm so jazzed this electric i i feel like when you start doing things like time to climb records Uh um that's like what people were doing in airplanes decades ago. You're right. right. Yeah, some of the original pioneers. Yeah, and yeah. so it feels like it's a new cusp. We're on that same pioneering edge. Yeah, that's what's, right. What's interesting to me about the whole electric engine um, you know, uh, technology that we're looking at now is that I really think that this could be a technology that would help students yep. closer to the airport. Yep. I mean, you can do the high-performance thing like the extra, and this definitely, you know, proves that it can be done, yep. and some aerobatic routines as well. Mm-hmm. But, you know, when you're trying to do a proof of concept and you're, you know, taking lessons, I think it would be a lot more, uh, a lot more, a lot easier for folk, folks to do and a little bit less expensive, too. Yeah. You know, the only real application that, that I think – I can't imagine electric helping a whole lot, even in the midterm, is maybe like corporate and airlines. Yeah. Um, but for almost any GA application, I think it's far superior to a gasoline engine. That's really interesting. You know, uh, we need to learn a little bit more about the backup power, things like that, because yeah. that's something that we always talk about even now yep. uh, with our with our gas-powered and diesel-powered engines. Yeah. But uh, certainly breaking the mold on this bad boy. Yeah, it's uh, it's so cool. It's so cool to see people do this kind of stuff. So now people are doing longer flights, so they're trying to you know prove out the uh, endurance, yeah. which is important. 
Um, they're doing all kinds of different technology like plug-in or battery swap. Um, and, and, of course, there's Walter Extra, you know, shooting up uh, with all that instant power. Up you to know, 10, th- this plane, to me, is, is, is a little hot rod. And when I think of electric or, or battery power, you know, you and I both talked about this. I had a Prius for a while. Yeah. Do you have one now? Yeah. I, yeah, sure do. So, you know, but... It's <laughs> but, not a hot rod. <laughs> no, it's not. But you can still spin the tires on it. Can you? It, uh, I did on mine. Did you? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But this I, kinda... uh, I have not tried to... <laughs> But Wait, uh, was it snowy out? How did you spin no, the tires? No, it just you got to get in the right conditions, just really? like the right conditions for an electric airplane, wow. you know, and, and, uh, and it did fine. We but, drive ours on eco mode. You know, it's got the three, it's got like power, regular, yeah, and eco mode. Sure. Yeah, yeah, we drive it on eco mode. I gotcha. Um, well, you're uh, yeah. do, doing good stuff for the um, for the environment. Yeah. But with it, speaking of the environment, something like this, could I, I really see that it could be going somewhere. Yeah. And, uh, and really help out folks who are just starting out in aviation. And really the technology... And throwing that kind of electric technology into an aerobatic airplane that has such pedigree. Yeah, it's awesome. Way to go. Yeah, it's awesome. And one more thing. You mentioned the flight school application. Um, you know, turns flight uh, during, between lessons, those okay, quick turns. Flip, like flips, whatever you call it. Yeah, yeah. Quick so, turn. Yeah, they, you know, now it's like you come down with a student. You got to refuel it. You got to wait for the fuel to come down to the sumps. You sump it, everything else. Oh, yeah. With quick um, swap batteries, it uh-huh. could be instant. It's like you go out to the airplane, you pull out the battery, you put in a new one, you're ready to go just like that. That would be nice. Like clip it in and go. Yep. Yep. That's it. And, um, and all of those training applications, it's like when a student first starts, my experience is it takes them, it's a, it's a good like 10 hours until most people yeah. feel comfortable operating the engine. Yeah. Uh, and that's amazing. I mean, it's like, could you imagine taking 10 hours every car you got in to try and figure Ooh. out how to operate it? No, I couldn't. Yeah. And so it's like to just show up at the airport, turn the key, and the thing just runs? Until you get comfortable with it, you're right. And plus, uh, we, you know, of course, we don't know what a pre-flight would look like, yeah. but one would assume it might even be easier. Yeah. I would think quicker. so. Yeah, absolutely. I know when I when I pre-flight our planes here, we have uh, some Cessnas that are available to us in a Beach mm-hmm. Sierra. I mean, I even going quick, it takes me a while, and I don't want to go too quick. I want to make yeah. sure everything is checked. You know, grab onto the to the different you know parts of the plane, make sure they're not going to fall off and that kind of thing. But uh, but on an electric plane, I would imagine it'd be a little bit less. Yeah. To do. Yeah, I think so. I know that when I pre-flight the Prius. Yeah, it, it's only a minute. Yeah, know, so yeah, yeah. There you go, getting that Prius and roll. That was yeah. a great car. It is now, a I know car. this is a an air. I know air, an aircraft podcast. Well, no, but it's that was true. A great car. It is, and it proves I think how like I I remember when we bought it. I I was scared because uh-huh. you think there is so much that could go wrong with this car technologically. Uh huh. And nothing has nothing happened to mine either. The yeah. o- the only thing that I ever had to service was. The regular battery that actually turned the the car on. Oh yeah, you know, it would, it would yeah. be like replacing the battery in your gasoline powered car yeah. with a Sears, you know, diehard or something. Yeah. And, uh, and I did that myself. Yep, that was it. I know it's amazing. So the technology is stone cold simple yeah. once once it's working. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah, really cool stuff. So uh, from electric to all the way to the other side. Oh yeah. Um, you tease this one, uh, jet making its first flight. The Stratos seven fourteen has finally flown and this is a, an aircraft it's a single engine jet it has two uh intakes one in each wing but it's yeah. a single engine jet hmm. and it has been in development since i think they took their first deposits in in 2008 whoa yeah it's been okay. a while yeah but it's uh coming to, to market soon this plane is kind of cool because 
the service ceiling is pretty high. It's like 41,000 feet. Yeah. And that's up where the commercial jetliners fly. Yeah. And the aircraft is badged a November 403 kilo tangle, like 403 knots. Oh, okay. And, but, uh, but now the uh, specs for the plane spec it out at 402 knots at true airspeed. And about maybe 402 KT wasn't available. <laughs> maybe it <laughs> yeah, wasn't. Right. I was wondering about that. I was getting ready to call the company and yeah, ask. Yeah, right. 1500 nautical mile range. So I think that their 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 goal is to have this be an, an interesting uh, what we call very light personal jet hmm. that can fly up in the uh, up in the flight levels. That's cool. Yeah, it definitely a long time in the making. They um, if you haven't seen a picture of this, you can just google it or go on to aopa.org, but it to me, it looks like kind of like um, the Cirrus jet and maybe like a um, scaled composites airplane had a baby. You like know? combined. Yeah. Yeah, it does indeed. It has that same kind of swoopy looking front. Yeah. And uh, it's, a, it's a sexy looking airplane. It, it really is. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's interesting. The, the first flight, now every company, unless there's an accident, is going to say, that, hey, the first flight went awesome. Right. Right. Um, this one only lasted ten minutes, yeah, which which kind of caught enough. yeah, kind of caught my eye. And if if you read our story, actually the uh, I think it was maybe the CEO made a comment. Yeah, who, and he said, well, there are a few minor issues that were expected. Nothing dramatic. Nothing dramatic. So that says to me maybe quite not not quite as successful as maybe they thought it was going to be. Right. Um, but hey. Got to give him a lot of credit. I mean, they built something and it flew. That's incredible. They, they did, and he was still relieved about it. And I think that, like like we said earlier, the first folks saw the plane back almost ten years ago. Yeah, like nine years ago now. Yeah. And uh, the aircraft is priced at about two point five million dollars in today's money, mm, which you know it's a lot of cash, but for a jet, it is. It yeah. is. Well, does that put it on par with like the uh, Cessna Mustang? Uh, uh, yeah, it's probably a little bit less than that. Um, depending on how it's spec'd out, but, right. um, obviously a little less capability in terms of seats and everything. Too, right. So. It is. It is smaller. Yeah. Um, so that's right about in the sweet spot of the market. I'd say it's an interesting concept. I, I'm glad to see someone, uh, you know, a group of folks taking the plane to market and, and really, I don't know if our podcast listeners know this, but it's so difficult to to get an aircraft or even a piece of avionics oh, yeah. you know to market millions these days and millions of dollars yeah and we yeah. talked about that last week and uh i think the week the podcast before that too so yeah. more kudos to these guys uh and test pilot dave morse for flying the plane um and uh and lynn fox over there to do those those high-speed tests yeah that's cool great all right so um Something else that's coming on uh, soon here in the next couple of months that, that people need to start thinking about and getting accustomed to is this ICAO flight plan. Right. Um, this is, uh, to make a super, super long story really short, basically what's happened is FAA is going to ditch that domestic flight plan form. They've been talking about this for like 10 years, by the exactly. way. Um, and, and they're going to incorporate the ICAO flight plan. And so form. what does ICAO mean? Is it just like international in scope? That's where yeah, it came what from? Yeah, what is it? International Civil Aviation Organization, basically. So everybody's on the same page, just like with, with uh, Zulu time. Yeah, you got it. I mean, that's the idea. So that everybody can operate off the same plan so that when you fly internationally, all the controllers know what's going on and the yeah. systems can talk it to each other and everything else. Have you done one of these? You, you and I were talking about this a, a few minutes ago. I actually uh, filed a, an FAA flight plan the other day to, to go down to um, Virginia. Yeah. And part of what came up on there were, were a couple of fields that I hadn't seen before. So it was sort of looked like it was sort of a combination. I did that on our own AOPA flight planner. Okay. And, uh, and, it, and it asked me a couple of things I wasn't familiar with, like what kind of survival equipment did I have on board. Mm. And, uh, and so then I started doing a little poking around, and the IKO flight plan does ask that. Yeah. 
Okay. It's specifically asked a little bit about what survival gear you have on board. You have four different kinds of survival gear that you could possibly have. Really? Yeah. Um, I'm going by memory now. We're yeah. looking at. <laughs> we're looking at. Uh, I think that that your choices are. Um, oh, is this thing? It's like water. Polar desert. Polar. Okay. Or desert, or maritime, or jungle. Wow. And you just click a box. Okay. And say accept. That's interesting. <laughs> okay. I'm not a survival expert. I don't even know what the difference between like. Uh, you know, jungle. And well, what flipped me desert. out was it asked me about dinghies. Oh, yeah. Now, they're talking about <laughs> boats here. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, and life jackets. Yeah. I mean, actually, we kid about it a little bit, but um, but it does have some very specific information, on that VHF, uh, ELTs, that kind of thing. Yeah. I believe it also asked about like a portable ELT, which I check because I do have one. Oh, okay. Yeah, and like a little portable PLB kind of a thing. Yeah. So is, basically, more detailed is the idea. Yeah, it looked like it uh, is a little bit more detailed with that. And uh, you and I were mentioning this earlier. It does go a little bit deeper into the aircraft equipment i think that for our podcast listeners that might be the thing that they need to get more familiar with yeah and i i think in my sort of limited experience with the flight plan up to now um flying a slant what we would call in the fa a slant golf airplane slant golf is normal well yeah. it's common yeah very common right so slant golf basically just isn't good enough i would say for the psycho form they need a lot more detailed information about because it, you know, if you imagine that it applies to every airplane around the world, it's right. like there's all kinds of unique approaches that they need to know that you can accept, all kinds of different RNP standards and everything else. That makes sense. Yeah, and so there's all kinds of like in route um, GPS and terminal GPS different standards, and then I know when you start to get into surveillance equipment, a la ADSB, there's uh-huh. all kinds of very detailed there. It's like what kind do you have and. It does ask for ADSB whether you have the 1090 or the 978. Yeah, Mike Collins would our our. ADSB expert would be yeah right he had no with problem this. with that so but, but everyone else is going to have to know by 2020 yeah, what they got that's right I, and so I think if you own an airplane it, here's here I guess here, in my limited experience here's the deal if you own an airplane and you're using a flight planning program uh-huh. you got to spend 10 15 minutes making sure that you fill it in properly and the, the first time yep and that it's stored and right. then you just file it just like right. now and it's no big deal. But if, if you rent, if you rent, or if you, oh, yeah, um, then you have you really, and you're depending then on on the flight school or the place where you're renting it, and then as a pilot in command, you need to make sure all that stuff's working. Yeah, that's right. I'd hope that they're gonna you know provide a sheet that's like okay, when you file your RKO flight plan, your equipment is S slash G slash H slash J, whatever the letters are. Yeah, S know? is pretty standard: VHF, radio, VOR, and ILS. Yeah, I think a lot of folks are gonna have that. Yeah, and then you know you go beyond that. Uh, to your mode A and mode C, which is your transponders. And, and then you can dig into that a little bit more and go mode S, mode, you know, different kinds of mode S's. Yeah. And then it, it gets deeper and deeper. And then, yep. of course, the ADSB. Yep. Yep. Really detailed. So, moral of the story is um, that's going to change over, mandatory changeover, sometime in the first quarter of next year. It's coming soon. So, yep. we've got to get used to it. That's Might right. Might as well start playing with it now. Yeah, I agree. And so, you mentioned the flight planner, it's on there. It is. It's on the AOPA flight planner. And I must say that um, we're not, I know we can talk about this in another podcast, but our flight planner has really stepped up the game a little bit. This is like a pre-flight planner. That's how Hmm. folks should kind of use it. Uh, But it is on there and it's on under, uh, when you uh, are, when you do your own flight plan, if you're going to go somewhere, look on the left side of the uh, flight planner software, which is technically a pre-flight planner planner yeah and then uh go over there where it says uh brief get your briefing and then where it says file right next to it yeah file is where it's going to bring up your fa flight plan and the new icao flight plan data 
Okay, cool. It's just that easy. It won't actually put it into effect until you hit submit, so you can play around with it now, get yeah. familiar with it, and uh, look at the different things that it has on there for you. And then actually, at that point, you ought to make sure you plug in your own information in there and just use yeah. the AOPA flight planner. It's really a good one. Yeah. No, I agree. I've used it. It is, it is great. Um, other options, I know that uh, Garmin and ForeFlight, if uh-huh. you're an iPad user, both support ICAO, so yes. make sure to put your info in there if you exactly. use one of those. The hard part, I think, is going to be when you call. You know, like calling. Yeah, because we're used to a certain order. Yeah, and so and the the you know where the FAA uh, flight plan form is like what a third of a page, half a page. It's like this IKEA one's like two pages. It's a little bit longer, and yeah. I think we're used to seeing the the different numbered slots. You and I were speaking about this a little bit earlier. It's like number one through seventeen. Yeah, and I know we've learned that for years. And then the the IKEA flight plan info doesn't really have numbers on it you know it doesn't lead you by the reins through there it's yeah definitely not as but easy. it's very similar yeah it's not it's nothing to be scared of i would say yeah okay cool great nice. okay so um from something that's coming up to to a passing um we have to talk about this week couldn't go on without without doing so even though i'm sure you've heard the news um that john glenn uh has left us the last surviving Mercury astronaut, which yeah. is a shame. It is. But yeah. uh, what a guy and what a series of accomplishments he did for, for us, for the country, and, and for aviation in general. Yeah, it is amazing. So now, you knew that he was a pretty accomplished pilot before even he was in NASA, right? Yeah, you know, I, I think, I, well, I knew he flew in the military, uh-huh. um, but in reading our story, I guess I didn't realize that he started taking lessons even before he got in the military. That is pretty amazing. Yeah. And he was a decorated war hero, too. Yeah. So uh, he, he had the right stuff way back when. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I think, you know, a lot of those guys, it is, they, a lot of them, you know, they came from maybe Midwest towns yeah. or, and they were all, a lot of them had, you know, uh, combat experience. And it was just something about it that's like that makeup. That sort of humble beginnings, but then this really exemplary service. It just sort of worked for they, them. They know? went on to greatness, and actually, he handled that really well. A, a lot yeah. of folks, you know, when you meet folks who are uh, sort of celebrities and that kind of thing, and let's face it, John Glenn was because yeah. of all of his aviation accomplishments. Accomplishments, but uh, he was a very humble person, and also his wife Annie was uh, famously known to be shy. And then I read mm. uh, deep down that she actually had she stuttered. Oh, wow. Did you know that? Mm-mm. So she was not she was not comfortable around people, and then the family was in the spotlight. Yeah. There's a pretty famous scene in the movie The Right Stuff where she calls him on the phone and says, hey, all these press people here, I'm worried, and mm. she didn't want to talk to the folks, and he said, Annie, if you tell them not to come in, just they won't come in. Yeah. And so he was that supportive of her. Mm. She went on to greatness herself. This is really cool. She um, overcame that stuttering problem. And she went on to teach people how to overcome that. Oh, wow. Yeah. And That's it, so cool. Is it James Earl Jones, the voice of CNN? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, he had that same issue. Oh, yeah. And so she, uh, I believe she taught him. Oh, wow. And he ended up being the voice of, this is CNN. Yeah, right. So, wow. So the John Glenn and his wife, uh, uh, very, very, um, you know, high, highly uh, thought of folks in America. Yeah. And he was he was 95. I know. You know, the one thing that got me is I, obviously not having lived through this. I mean, I I, I remember uh, in detail, you know, how he went up in the shuttle the second time when he was in his seventies. But seventy-seven years old. Yeah, wow. I didn't realize he was forty. Um, oh, for the friendship mission. Yeah. Oh man. Which is, uh, I think, for the astronaut corps, maybe it's pretty a, old. Yeah, slightly older. So it is. Um, 
you know, he had a nice full life even before he went to space. So. Well, he did. And also, he was a well-respected senator on the Hill. Yes. A lot of my photo friends photographed him at one time or another, either mm-hmm. during parades or on the Hill, and said that he was always very approachable. And it, it seemed that he really had it together. And by the time he did that one last space shot, it was a little bit controversial. Yes, Because he was well-advanced, you yes. know, age-wise. Yeah. Uh, but he powered right through that as well. Yeah, and so uh, the so the friendship seven was his first uh, the first space mission. Yeah, that's wild. Yeah, amazing. And how long did it last? Here, I got the story up. Five, oh, five hours. hours. Five hours. Yep. Yep. But it's impact inspired millions. Yeah, and incredible In- stuff. Incredible. I agree. Totally agree with you on yeah. that. Yeah. Very cool. Sorry to. See him go. It's Jesus. Seems like a couple of weeks now, in, in a row that we talk about yeah, sort we of had, icons. We had Bob Hoover pass away not long ago too, yeah, and Arnie and, and Arnold yeah. Palmer, who was an accomplished aviator. Yeah, we uh, 2016 wasn't really good to us for for uh, our longtime aviators. Yeah, but their impact will be felt for decades to come. That's right. That's right. So um, one thing about people when they when they pass, you know, you get to see uh, different people in aviation essentially honoring them. And one way is, you know, they have photos of them, like of how they met them at an air show or something like that. In fact, I remember Patty Wagstaff uh, posted a photo of her and John Glenn talking, and she said he was a fan of aerobatics and everything else, Oh yeah, uh, which is really cool. And so, you know, air shows being this great way to connect with other aviators. And so that leads us into, into our final story, which is um, fly-ins for this year. Oh, yeah. Let's do talk about the fly-ins. You know, we, we are building on our success and uh, we had 44,000 folks who have attended these fly-ins since AFPA started them in, what, 2014? Uh, yeah, that'd so, be right. Yeah. So, um, and I've been to a few this past year and a half or so. Then, and actually, I went to some of the summits before. Yeah. And, uh, and I must say that the regional fly-ins for me as a pilot are the way to go. Yeah, they're great fun. It's a lot of fun, and we are going to pack a lot more into it. We're going to expand it a little bit Yeah, uh, this coming up year. Um, I don't know if you wanted to speak about that or if you wanted me to roll uh, with it. Well, let's talk about the days first and okay. kind of and where they are. So four events this year. Four events starting out in uh, April, April 28th yep. and 29th. And can, can I pronounce this? Camarillo, California. You got, you got it. Okay. <laughs> um, and then, uh, and then things are really kind of jammed together. We've got September in Norman, Oklahoma. Right. Uh, which, who, depending on if you're an OSU fan or an OU fan, could be a good thing or a bad thing. Oh, that's right, because it's right during uh, football season. Yeah, and that's up that a weekend. rivalry there. Yeah, right. and uh, Norman. Um, now, how do you pronounce the uh, October sixth and seventh in Connecticut? And how do you pronounce it? Is it Groton or Groton? Groton. 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 Like, like, uh, like. Agraton, like yeah. the food. Yeah, right, right. But G R O T O N. Yeah, Groton, Connecticut, Groton, which is a naval submarine base near yep. there, pretty right on big the, time right on, the, right. on the coast. That's right. right. And then finishing up at uh, Peter O'Knight in Tampa, which October twenty seventh and twenty eighth, not right near Halloween. Yep. Uh, it's funny you mentioned summits where we've we've done summits. We, in the past. I went to that summit. Yeah, in awesome. Tampa. That airport is awesome. Yeah, Peter O'Knight is a super cool place. Um, so kind of you know scattered around the country again, which we try to do. Yeah. Um, and you'll notice, uh, David, you, you mentioned two days for these dates. Typically, we've called them one. Two days plus, actually. That's right. So a little bit of a different format this year. It's cool. It is cool. I'm excited to see this. Yeah. So we're going to, and I want to stress, the, the core fly-in is more or less the same. It is. We're going to learn about uh, safety. Yep. We've got some education briefings. We're going to learn about equipment. We're going to have manufacturers there. That stuff hasn't really changed. Yep. And you can come just on Saturday. Uh, it's a couple bucks for like lunch and uh, and breakfast, uh-huh. and you can leave, and that's it. Um, or 
the exhibits are going to start earlier on Friday. On Friday afternoon. So come in Friday afternoon. The exhibits will be open. We've got the Barnstormers party. Barnstormers party on Friday night is super cool. Yep. It's a lot of fun, a That's lot of camaraderie. Fun. It's where you make, make and renew friendships. Yep. Um, so you can come for that whole thing. Or if you want to get a little deeper, right. learn a little more, a lot of times these are going to be hands-on. There'll be immersive workshops all day on Friday. So starting around, I think, 9 a.m. on Friday. Um, really get going with it. Yeah, for, for a fee. We don't, they don't know what yet because it's going to depend on the workshop. But it's going to be specific. The workshops will be very specific to that region. Yep. Like if you're near mountains, it most likely will encompass mountain flying techniques. Yep. That's right. Or some sort of hands-on maintenance or uh, exactly. over water, maybe in California. Or on the coast in Tampa. Yep. yep. Right? So And so the whole idea is you can get really deep on that subject. They'll have expert presenters. Um and then, and, and you know, it's like six or seven hours or something of, of really uh, good information. And then when the fly-in is over on Saturday. This is the coolest part. This is the fun part. Yeah. You'll hopefully, in most cases, get to then go take what you've learned on Friday and apply it on do, Saturday. Like do a little group fly out. Yeah. To somewhere that's probably cool, fun, new, and different. Yeah. And so we'll work with type clubs on that um, and other groups like RAF and American Bonanza Society and, and lots of others, I'm sure. Um, to organize these different flyouts. I think that's really going to be a lot of fun because yeah. you'll take that knowledge that you have and then as soon, if you use it sooner rather than later, you're not going to forget it. Yep. And it'll have it ingrained in, in, your, uh, in your psyche a little bit more. It'll be fresh and it'll be a lot of fun. It'll be the folks that you hung out with and you'll be able to do a little bit of flying with them too. Yeah. So I think that that's a super cool idea. And uh, you know, the regional fly-ins were so popular uh, the past few years. In fact, you know, We've had more than six thousand aircraft yeah. at these fly-ins. Yeah, it is. It's definitely surpassed Summit, no question about it. It is just going to be super cool. I'm looking forward to it a lot. I'm really looking forward to the new flyout destinations this year, Ian. Especially learning a little bit more on uh, Friday. Um, there will be a paid admission for that. We need to remind our podcast listeners. Yep, as well as the Saturday flyouts. Exactly. Um, but of course, those are voluntary, and you, and you can come. That core event has not changed. It's still free. Yep. And so you know, come the, and enjoy that. In several of the events I've been to, it really a lot of local people came. Yeah. It was cool. That's very and cool. They saw what was going on. They saw a lot of aircraft. They saw a lot of traffic, and yeah. they showed up. Yeah, yeah. So we hope to see you there um, throughout the year at one of those four locations um, or at a future one in, in future years. And also uh, remind our folks that are listening to the podcast that they could nominate their own field. That's right. If they want to. That's right. Go on to the AOPA.org website and navigate over towards that uh, community events area and uh, select select the drop down and tell us why we need to get there yeah. where you are. Cool. Great. Okay, David, um, now to our guest. Uh, this is somebody that you spoke to. Uh, folks probably necessarily haven't heard of him, but uh, got a really interesting story. Yeah, I spoke to South Carolina State President James Clark, and uh, he came to my attention because he flew an R- a Vans RV over Clemson Stadium, which is also known as Death Valley. <laughs> <laughs> I photographed many, uh, many football games there, but um, the James Clark led a formation flight before the national anthem there, mm. and he led it in an RV airplane that he manufactured himself. That's home awesome. Built. And then I came to find out that he really has a ton of experience leading formation flights. Huh. And, uh, he's and he's a, a college president. A college president at South Carolina State, which is a, an historically black university. Okay. And, uh, and, but he is a big-time aviator and just a fascinating person to talk with. So we spent some time on Skype with him, uh, with, uh, with President Clark, and he was just a cool guy. 
first of all, tell us a little bit about what you do over at, at South Carolina State. Well, uh, a little over 100 days, I'm president of a university. I did serve on the uh, Board of Trustees for about a year. The uh, Board of Trustees had, and the previous president had been replaced. The legislator, legislature appointed seven people uh, to uh, as a new board to uh, make sure that the university was successful in a particular turnaround and accreditation and other financial matters. Um, and uh, we got past a critical hurdle regarding the accreditation. And now we have a lot of things to do to not just uh, survive as a university, but to thrive as a university. It's 120 year um, plus uh, institution. That's one of the great institutions here in South Carolina and around the nation, uh, serving a particular um, uh, a particular uh, set of students, and uh, we're having a, we're having a great time now. You know, uh, making making a difference in people's lives. And uh, you are you guys are a historically black university. Yes, we're an HBCU, and uh, as a matter of fact, once upon a time, I would say probably I was in the in the seat of being premier in you know, HBCU. Uh, we're not as not as uh, uh, at the front of the line as we uh, used to be, but we're working on getting back to that spot. Okay, well you can probably tell from my accent that I'm from the South, I'm from Atlanta, so I'm very familiar with, uh, with yes. Clark University and yes. uh, Morris Brown and yes. Morehouse. And Morehouse. Yeah, yeah. So now you are um, not only the school president, but you are also an aviator and a very active aviator. Yes. Tell me a little bit about how you got started in aviation, President Clark. Well, the, since you grew up in Atlanta, I grew up in a small town called Quincy, Florida. Okay. It's near near the Florida Georgia border, and uh, and I, I ended up doing uh, uh, working on a farm. Mm -hmm. My folks owned a farm, and that farm was uh, we we grew corn and tobacco. And uh, my my dad from time to time would hire crop dusters, mm -hmm. and because of the crop dusters, as a little kid, I would see them <laughs> down low and come right up to the edge of the the pine trees and pull up, go vertical, hammer, hammerhead turn, turn around, come right back down. And so I was really impressed by it. Now, my father was old school and uh, he, uh, he he was not so much into flying. He was mm -hmm. born before Wilbur and Orville took their first flight. So his his view of flying was if God meant for you to be flying, you'd have a set of wings. <laughs> <laughs> I got you. I, went, I went out one time to, to uh, when he went to pay them and they offered me a ride and he said no. And so I, I think I, that made me mad enough to, to uh, look into flying later on. And many, many years later, when I could afford it, I took flying lessons, and that's how I got started. So you, learned, so you uh, got the flying bug when you were a child working on your dad's farm down in North that's Florida. Right. Yes. And, but, uh, of course, like a lot of us, it took a few years for you to be able to save up to have the money and the time. Right. And so tell me when you started taking your lessons, about when was that, either uh, chronologically, when was that, what year, or about how old you were, or, you know, say 10, okay, 20 years ago, uh, however. Well, after um, I'd finished school and finished undergrad and grad school, I was working in South Florida, and, uh, and a, a friend of mine and I were sitting down, and she had a flying magazine, and she said, you know, uh, I, I looked at it, and I said, uh, that's something I was thinking about doing one day. And she said, well, well, if you're serious, ground school starts next week, and I plan to go. And, and if you're serious, I'll sign you up. That's what do you mean if I'm serious? Sign me up. And so uh, my friend Brenda signed me up for ground school, and I and I uh, and I did. I, I took it, and and uh, then that was uh, I think that was in '87, uh, mm -hmm. 
and I did ground school, passed all of that, and I said, well, I have a couple of years to, to go do the flying. But in 88, I got uh, uh, recruited by AT&T to go to New Jersey as one of their vice presidents. Mm -hmm. And uh, time had slipped by, a year had slipped by, and you have two years after you do your written. And all of a sudden, I had a few months that I had to get it done, so I went into uh, overdrive mode and uh, got everything done except for the long cross country. Mm -hmm. And now uh, think about this in New Jersey around November, it gets gray. Oh yeah. And it doesn't get ungray and white on the ground <laughs> until about April, March, April. So I went from November to April, not being able to do long cross country. Oh no. And I went and did it in Florida later on. I finished May, 1990. That's when I got my, uh, private pilot's license. And then some years later, in 92, I ended up moving to South Carolina. And there are a lot of aviation opportunities there. I later in 93 bought my first airplane. And then uh, five or six years later, started a project building an, an RV. Ended up with a friend of mine, Patty, and I built an RV6 that we finished in 2002. And it ended up being the kind of the poster child um, at uh, EAA's um, uh, Air Venture this year because it celebrated... 30 years of Vans aircraft, RV-6. And the one that was on the poster was my red and white RV-6. Now, I happened to be on the board of directors at EAA, but it was not because of that. It was because they had done an article on me, I don't know, eight or 10 years ago. And as part of their stock photography, they this kind of pretty red and white plane against green background. It stood out. It's an RV-6. It just happened to be the right model for it. And, uh, and, I, and I got shocked. They sent it to me in July. sent me and said, this, this is the plane that's been selected. So that's a cool story. So you, yeah. it, it took you about 10 years to build that aircraft. Well, the, actually that aircraft was built, uh, let's see, we, we, someone else had started the project and then we spent another four and a half years on it. So it is probably about seven years of work was put in there, okay. six, seven years of work was put into the project. Um, and then I started another one, which I still haven't finished. And I have a third one that I purchased flying, but I totally redid every wire sensor, Everything on the panel, every switch, you know, all of the glass panels and everything, I totally redid an RV-8. That's a nice aircraft. Absolutely. That's right. Very capable. And that one, that one I'm doing, uh, hopefully, in honor of the Tuskegee Airmen. Mm -hmm. I've done everything to it except for the paint scheme now. Well, there are two things. I plan to fly an, um, an original uh, documented Tuskegee Airmen in it, and I plan to have it painted, you know, in honor of them, you know, to the precise colors and precise scheme. Now, how many Tuskegee Airmen are left with this uh, this day? I, just a handful. I really don't know. It's just a few. Remember, these they're in their 90s. Yeah. Uh, some years ago, I, I was a chair of the 60th anniversary reunion activity that w that happened in South Carolina because uh, they actually did some of the advanced pilot training in, uh, in South Carolina. I was just wondering if you might end up trying to give one of those uh, young men a, a ride later in their life. In that well, RV-8, when you finish it. Well, that's that's what I'm hoping, and I and I I have one that's fairly well known. I, I hope that his his health is holding up. That I'm hoping to fly. Excellent. Oh, well, let's talk, let's talk a little bit more about your um, uh, the aircraft that you flew um, over the stadium when you guys were playing uh, Clemson, which is not yes. long ago. So yes. uh, go ahead and set that that set up that flight for me and how that came about and what it was like to lead that formation, I'm assuming, during the anthem. That, um, it, it's kind of interesting. Once, uh, I, I've been flying formation over 10 years. I've done a lot of clinics. I've done ground school. 
at a, a part portion of uh, teaching the ground school portion at several clinics, and and I'm uh, I've been up with many many people first time doing formation, which is kind of a lot of trust and sometimes scary. Mm-hmm. Um, and I flew with uh, Team Aerodynamics for a while, which was the world's largest formation aerobatic team. Okay. So flying up close and personal, you know, with with uh, individuals was was no new thing, no big thing. And we'd flown whether it was games or NASCAR or air shows and so forth. We'd done that before. So when it was became public that I was president of, of South Carolina State University and we were going to be playing Clemson, um, a, a person that had flown with me who had been in a class that I had given training said, you've got to fly a formation flight over Death Valley at Clemson. This would be so cool. And I said, well, you know, I, you know, he said, no, 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 you got to do it. We'll work, you know, we'll work on uh, getting everything squared away with uh, Clemson. He was a graduate of Clemson. And then he started, you know, calling other people and other people that had flown with me, uh, stepped in and volunteered. So we had people coming from multiple states volunteering to support the effort. And, uh, you know, at, at, at no cost to anyone, uh, kind of, uh, kind of, you know, these are buddies, uh, kindred spirits, so to speak. Um, and my assistant here also, when she found out that I was uh, flying, uh, said, wow, it'd be great for you to do a flyover somewhere, and including a homecoming game at SC State. And we're planning that, by the way, for this upcoming Saturday, if weather permits and everything else works out. But the Clemson game, uh, we decided to do it. And good buddy of mine, Jerry Morris, a widget, said uh, took on the task of filing all of the FCC, I mean FCC, F- FAA paperwork, you know, that you have to do because the Clemson Stadium is of the size that has a TFR, you know, it's an over 30,000 person mm-hmm. stadium. You have to do all, lots of paperwork and you have to have all the right credentials. So all of these individuals are fully credentialed. And uh, so we did all the paperwork and got all that arranged and got all the timings and so forth done and the markers down, the, the geomarkers and the the, the, the references on the ground and we had to be time on target it was 11 55 and 35 seconds to the last note of the national wow. anthem <laughs> yes <laughs> so, well, you, so you guys well, pulled yes. that pulled that off in front of a hundred thousand people yeah well it was uh it's probably 75 or so 75 80 in the stadium and i don't know how many thousand outside you know tailgating around so there were a lot of people there uh, watching it and the and they announced it, and it was—I think it was a little bit of surprise because, you know, people said, "What, what is—is is he actually in the plane?" Or, and then he—he's flying the plane. So what? He built the plane. A college president doing that? Wait a minute. You know, this is pretty cool. And I think the other thing is though that people say, you know, if, if they have a president doing that up in the air, they must be doing some pretty cool stuff down on the ground. So it paid dividends both in the air and on the ground back at school. The uh, the big dividends really is is back on on the ground and you know it's it's, it's something for the uh, it gets people talking about school in a positive way it gets uh, the students you know the parents the staff you know the the faculty saying oh okay this 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 guy's about precision so no wonder he's uh he's pushing us with so much precision that makes sense one other thing I, I use that as a metaphor for teamwork for high performance uh, teamwork. Tell me about that. Tell me how that metaphor works. Well, one of the things that I point out is that um, in order, when we were doing the uh, the formation flights and the air shows, you know, we we're traveling 200 miles an hour, three to five feet of, apart. And uh, if you don't communicate well and understand exactly what the objectives are for everyone, 
And if you don't clearly articulate errors and mistakes, you know, when we debrief every flight, you have to, with open communication, then somebody could die. And so the notion of having open, honest communication amongst every member of the team, checking your ego at the door, realizing that it's not personal. It's about making the team be better, making, making it possible for there to be a much better performance for everyone as, as a result of that type of communication. Everyone knowing exactly what the total team is doing and specifically knowing what their task, what their part is, and making the big show, so to speak, uh, uh, be real and exciting. Uh, I think I think the same kind of thing applies when you're working uh, in any other organization. Okay. Well, now speaking of a big show, now how what did it feel like when you were flying and, and you got down to that 11:55 and 35 seconds? And what what were the thoughts running through your through your mind right then as you're getting ready to make that flyover? Well, actually, um, the 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 more of the jitters happens a lot sooner. Uh, the once you're locked in, you know, you fairly comfortable you know a little bit of speed change you know you're watching different clocks and timers as you you headed in but the big the the you're set long before you know you get there i mean for example we have um two uh two minute markers that we have to hit and i have some variability in the first two minute marker but by the by the time i get to the second two minute marker i'm on a straight in and um and about halfway in i actually don't see the stadium, you know, uh, because it's beneath, you know, beneath my nose. And so I have a reference point out in front of me. I have a reference point on the GPS and I'm looking at the countdown timers and so forth. And so, you know, maybe about 20, 30 seconds out, we call for the smoke on and we just hold what you got, you know, at that point in time, you know, cross over and uh, go a few seconds afterwards and turn the smoke off. And then that's when you breathe. That's when you exhale, you know, afterwards after the smoke goes off. Uh, and then you wait until you get on the ground and, and hope, you hope and pray that the when you pass over, the last note of the national anthem was, was happening. I'll <laughs> bet, I'll bet. Now, now, how many folks were in the flyover, you and how many other people? And what uh, kind of, what kind of formation were you in? It was an uh, eight-ship um, uh, formation. Basically, it was a, a V, a Vic with a, with a stinger. So, and so it was me with one, one in, uh, in close trail right underneath me. And uh, and uh, three uh, off off each wing, you so, know. So you were you were number one lead. I was lead. Yeah, I was lead. So that's what I said. The and for that game against Clemson, who had, who had started the year off at number two, and uh, we were in a <clears throat> rebuilding year. We had just sent four four individuals to the NFL. Uh, we uh, uh, but we, we we opened the game with the the Alpha Bulldog leading the Tigers, so to speak. <laughs> perfect. That's a perfect and, way to open the game. That's right. Then, then I handed it over to the coach, and it, it was left up to him to, to win the game. I see. But well, I will well, say, we did come back with our band, the Marching 101, and dominated the halftime. Excellent. I like hearing that. Yep, cool deal. That's a cool story. Let me ask you a little bit more about the nuts and bolts of your aviation, and we're going to you know, circle yes. back to the beginning real quick. All right. Um, and I know you're tight on time. But um, when you were just learning how to fly back in the 80s here, did you have any early challenges that you, that you had to overcome? Thinking back as a student. Uh, yes. Uh, one, of the, one of the things that I recall is stalls. And a lot of people have that with stalls. And I, one of the things that I've come to believe is it's a function of how stalls get introduced. And, uh, and the way stalls were introduced to me, I think, could have been, a, been done in a different manner. 
And so stalls should be, people should, instructors should think about that, you know, because it's, uh, it should be explained more and uh, done gently and shown how it can be done gently. And, uh, and so you end up with this, this fear now of spins. Now, that's the other thing. You know, there's two different schools of thought. And one school says teach spins and spin recovery. And then the other one that says teach spin avoidance. You never, ever go there. The boogeyman is on the other side, you know. And so I think early on, with the right kind of training, gently working into stalls, and I've come to believe now gently working, you know, some spin training um, would, be a, would be a good thing. Uh, other than that, a um, little bit on navigation. You know, uh, I kind of have a math and engineering background, so, you know, learning, but this is just before GPSs, mm-hmm. you know, are coming out, you know, the VORs and, you know, NDBs and so forth, and stopwatches and timers uh, but um once a, once the gps first gps came out it was like cheating you know you know it actually it was actually telling you roughly how much time it was going to be before you get there and and that you were on the right heading you know so that was uh after that you know as navigation became a, a breeze yeah students like josh cochran in our uh, control room have a pretty easy now compared to how you and i learned huh oh oh that's right as a matter of fact i uh a little story i uh I uh, did my, I did a long cross country solo, took off late afternoon, this is up in New Jersey. And um, and the requirements were, uh, with, the, with the school, flight school I was with, whenever you land, top off the tanks. Do not leave anywhere without topping off the tanks. Well, I land, and it takes the fuel truck a lot longer than expected to get the plane topped off. So when I take off, it's about sunset. Mm-hmm. And I have to kind of go over some hills up in New Jersey, kind of like mountains almost, to a VOR and come back toward, you know, head toward New York City. You know, I was in up in Morristown, New Jersey. So a lot of lights and a lot of opportunities to get lost. And so my uh, flight instructor uh, got a little nervous for a while because he realized that it was dark and I was not back. Now, we had done night flying, so, and uh, but I was having to do, you know, cross-check, VOR cross-check, timing everything, making sure that I all... All the timing was right, calculating all that in real time, and and uh, ended up not a problem. But with a GPS, you just say direct. Well, yeah. Were they getting ready to put send the search party out for you, or uh, not quite? Well, he, he was he was just sweating. He hadn't gotten that far. <laughs> well, I'm glad you made it back okay back then. So now um, uh, that leads us to another good question, which is uh, what were some of the hardest lessons to learn when you were flying? Uh, probably the hardest lesson. Well, the most humbling experience is getting a tailwheel endorsement. Well, you needed that because you got the RV6. That's right. That's right. And I started with an Aronka 7AC, Aronka Champ. And uh, that'll, um, that'll make you humble because, you know, you can't stop flying it until it's tied down in the hangar. You know, put away in the hangar or tied down on the field. Uh, and I tell people now, if your feet are not moving, you're just a passenger. Ooh. I like that. So, so tailwheel, tailwheel flying taught you a lot about aviation. It sounds like. Yeah, yeah. That's you know those rudder pedals. They're there for a reason. You know. Gotcha, gotcha. So now, did you learn tailwheel in the Aronka, and then did you have anything in between that was tailwheel before you transitioned to the plane that that you flew? Went straight from from a from Aronka to RV six, and actually it was great because the Aronka made you anticipate so much because you put it in and kind of wait, and then you have to anticipate. What's, it's going to go the other way and put it in early and, and and but with the RV it responded right now 
And so you were anticipating with the uh, with the Aronka, and RV was just right now, right now. It's like, oh, this is pretty cool. Awesome. Well, that might uh, let, let's talk a little bit about your favorite airplane. I'm guessing that's the one over your right shoulder back there, the red and white RV6. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Uh, that plane I've flown, uh, that's the one that Patty, my friend Patty and I did, 996 Papa Juliet, Patty James. And uh, we finished it in 2002. It's flown as far south as Key West a few times, as far north as Traverse City, Michigan, which is basically to Canada, as far west as uh, Yellowstone, which is almost to California, and lots of places in between. And um, Oshkosh, it's gone there almost every year of its existence, you know, you know many, many times, let's just say 10 times, a dozen times. Well, I'm sorry I missed you at Oshkosh this year, but we're going to ha definitely have to hook up next year. So let, we'll bookmark that yes. on our both of our calendars. And it's, and it's done several trips to Triple Tree. You guys have been down there. I, I, we were down there this year. Were you there this yes. year? I ended up uh, being able only to get there for a sh uh, very short time on the weekend because I had these other duties, you know, at this other place, you know, <laughs> that was keeping me busy. Your, your day job's interfering a little bit too much with your aviation. Aviation style, that's right. <laughs> All right, so um, uh, so the airplane that you built behind you, you were talking to me just now about Patty Smith. Can you spell that name for me real quick? No, it's uh, P-A-T-T-Y, Gillis, G-I-L-L-I-S. I'm sorry, yes. Patty Gillis. Yes. And so now yes. what's the relationship between y'all two and the airplane? We, were, uh, we, we decided to, I was working on another project, uh, and she and a friend of mine were working uh, together on a project. She wanted to get into building. And so it was an opportunity to help her with a dream come true. And I, I found a project and said, okay, we'll do it together. We'll do this one quickly. And, uh, and while I do some customization on the other, and we got that one flying quickly and, uh, she, she flew it for a little bit, but I was flying it, you know, maybe 10 to one. And, uh, but her real love is boats. And so I eventually bought, bought, bought her, bought her out on the, on the plane. And now uh, she's she uh, she and her boyfriend now I think are traveling somewhere in in the Rockies or something. You know? Okay. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, I'm going to circle back around with a couple of softball questions. We're going to end it up because I know you got to go. Yes. Um, hit me with the about approximate total time you've got aviation wise. Oh, boom. Uh, you can ballpark it. About three thousand, maybe. Three thousand hours. See, an RV, an RV. I have uh, over two thousand in the RV. And the RV six, that RV six alone. Wow. And then I have time in an RV eight, and I have time in other RVs nines, and I've actually flown uh, the RV one. Uh, flown RV one. I've flown RV fours, RV six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Haven't flown the fourteen. RV twelve. Uh, and uh, the only RV I haven't flown is the fourteen, which is the large side by side. I just didn't bother to fly with that. And I had an opportunity to fly an RV3, single seat, but I haven't done that. But uh, once I fly to RV3, uh, and I'll later get the 14, I would have flown the, all of the RVs. Not many people have, have done that, okay? And uh, I have time in Piper, I don't know, six, seven hundred hours at least in Piper, and then maybe a hundred over a hundred hours in Cessnas and then other miscellaneous planes. I, I guess that adds up to over 3,000 hours. Awesome. So you've uh, aircraft you've owned. You told me about the RV six. You got the RV eight right now. You're telling yes. me about. And yes. what else did you have through the line? RV six A. I was a partner in an RV, in a, a Ronka Champ at one time. 
at a PA-28 uh, Alpha 181, mm -hmm. an Archer 2 Piper, uh, and I, I, I sold that. And I've flown in, you know, the larger Pipers and the Lancers and, the, you know, the Bonanzas and Barons and so forth. Anything without an engine? Nothing without an engine. No gliders, uh, no hot air balloons, no gliders? A balloon. I've gone up a balloon. I've done some, some little bit of balloon time. Yes, yes. Yes, I did. I, I forgot about that. <laughs> Man, I guess the uh, the biggest the biggest plane I've uh, flown is, uh, got some time in a B-17. Left, left seat before. You can't get left seat time now. Wow. Unless you're one of those people that with a bazillion hours. Uh, and I got a chance to do that. And uh, Ford Trimotor, uh, you know. Some right seat, right seat time in that. And uh, one of the things that's on my bucket list, uh, uh, not long ago, I got a chance to go up in a P-51 Mustang. Fantastic. So, so instead of like 160 horsepower in an RV, it was like uh, 1,600 horsepower, you know, in the Mustang. <laughs> it got off the ground pretty quick, no doubt. Well, actually, but not all that fast because you don't, you don't use that horse. If you poured the coals on it, you'd basically flip it over. Got you know, it. but uh, the torque and so forth. But, uh, you know, you take your time, you ease up. And once you're flying it, you don't fly it that much faster than I fly the RV-8. No kidding. It's a lot of gas. It will go two or three times faster, but but uh, it, you've got to be prepared to write a big check for the gas. Oh, yeah. Gotcha. Um, let's circle back around real quick and tell me if you uh, can uh, think back about uh, your training initially and where you are now. Do you have any advice for flight students? Um, flight students, not not necessarily college students at uh, South Carolina. Oh State, yes, but flight yes, yes. Um, yes. Um, if you're going to um, train, save up your money first. And my my rule of thumb is try to fly at least twice, but no more than three times a week. If you fly too much slower, well, too too much, you know, less than that, then you're always climbing back up the hill. And you'll spend a lot, lot more money. It'll take you a lot, lot longer. If you try to cram in too much more than that, then you know you're just rushing, rushing through it, and and and, and you can enjoy the experience. The other thing is respect weather. Mother Nature always wins. You know, you maybe you can break even sometime and luck out, but you do not win against Mother Nature when there's bad weather. You know, and there's an old expression, it's always better to be down here wishing you were up there than up there wishing you were down here on the ground. Amen to that. And I know you guys saw some heavy weather last week over in South Carolina because of that hurricane, too. Yes, so, yes. Uh, hopefully you escaped that without any, any major hardship to your airplane or any of your buddies' planes. Uh, uh, no plane damage, uh, lots of trees blown over, lots of flooding, power outage. Some people were out of power for a week, you know, but we were one of the first universities to get back up and online and get the students going back to class. Good Maybe deal. Maybe to their chagrin. Good deal. All right, I got to ask you a couple of uh, questions here, a little bit more personal nature. Uh, can you uh, ballpark me your age or give me your exact age? 63. All right. I already know your occupation. We got your hours. Tell me about certificates and ratings, obviously. Uh, you uh, let's give me see, most private pilot, instrument, commercial. High performance endorsement, tailwheel endorsement, uh, FFI card holder, flight lead is wingman and flight lead. Excellent. Uh, any multi engine time? Uh, so, a little bit of multi engine time, but I'm not multi engine. Not multi -engine rated. Engine okay. Training. All right. And favorite aircraft among guests, like we said, the one over your right hand shoulder? 
<laughs> I, that's probably I, I'll have to put that in the in the category in terms of the ones that I fly. Uh, the RV. Gotcha. Um, I'm in good shape. Is there anything that you wanted to comment to me that I didn't ask you? Uh, for, uh, from time to time, um, a couple of things. Uh, people that are interested in flying, some people say, well, maybe I always wanted to do it. It's never too late. And uh, it's a lifetime experience if you go out and get a, get a pilot's license. And you can do it. You can do it in six months or you can you know, take a year or you can take two years or take whatever amount of time that, uh, that works for you. But it's something that will last last your lifetime, and it's a unique experience. It doesn't matter what you fly, you know. Once you're in the uh, part of the band of aviators, you know. Once you get a little air under your seat, you know that's it. You know you're you're amongst that 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 unique group or that unique fraternity called pilots, and it's a it is a wonderful experience. Absolutely. Uh, I was going to ask you one more question about uh, trying to tie aviation into South Carolina State. Um, yes. Do you guys have any kind of aviation program at the school? And um, if not, are you thinking about bringing something like that in? Currently, no, but yes, in the future, thinking about it. Uh, uh, probably the major uh, builder of aircraft has a significant facility in South Carolina, and um, uh, primarily uh, Boeing. And there, there's other aviation activity and aerospace activity, a lot of aerospace initiatives that are underway. As a matter of fact, I'm on one of the councils and committees that are looking at readiness for that, you know, educational readiness and workforce readiness. And I think there's a significant opportunity for, for SC State in the future. But, you know, we have to line, get, a, get our ducks lined up. Uh, but what we want to do is make sure that we provide the educational experience that leads to a significant opportunity for our students. And... Uh, I, I have a particular bias in that area, and I have a few ideas that I think will make us unique. Well, you, you're uh, absolutely, it sounds like you're uh, a builder with a lot of experience, a lot of engineering background, and you can share a lot of that with the up-and-coming students. And you know, science, technology, engineering, and math, that's the buzzword for the future. Exactly, exactly. And, we're, uh, and we have a significant uh, number of engineering programs, and we're looking as to how to tie that, with a, add a little spice to tie that into the needs and requirements of the aerospace aviation industry. Well, President Clark, I appreciate your time today with us at AOPA via Skype. Yes, yes, and um, give my regards to all of the management crew up there. Absolutely, thanks again, appreciate it. So it's, uh, it's neat to hear. I mean, he's got all this aviation stuff going on and yet still running the university. So that's pretty exciting. It's hard to do. I guess he's a good at juggling events and yeah. juggling things and uh, just a fantastic flyer and good to have folks like that in, in the GA world. That's right. Cool. All right, David. Uh, I think that wraps it up for this week. Our editor is Austin Hansen. I'm Ian Twombly. And I'm David Tulis. Find us at aopa.org slash hangertalk or email us at hangertalk at aopa.org. Don't forget, we're now on iTunes and at Sporty's Takeoff app. All right. We'll see you next time. See you. Thanks. Hey!